airwaves, here is my request. You don't have to play it, but I hope you'll do your best. I've been listening to your show on the radio, and you seem like a friend to me. Howdy, hi, Victoria. Stand the man. Hello. Oh, don't get up, it's only me. Hello, welcome to a brand new year. I'm Liz. I'm Pete. 1420-3XY, how are you? It's nine after six with Lee Simon. It's 18 to six, 3DB with Keith McGowan. More grand old favourites to play for you a little later on. 3EE, The Breeze 693. Good morning and welcome to our brand new radio station. Good afternoon, Melbourne. It's seven minutes past three. This is Greg Evans at 1420 3XY. Well, hi and welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves. It is our 40 minutes or so where we talk with the people behind the voices who were friends to a whole generation. And this week, we chat with an air traffic controller rather than a pilot, a person who charted the directions of the pilots, had the power to change our listening habits, has been a major radio influence in three states, and is a media mailroom to boardroom story like no other. Brendan Sheedy, welcome to Pilots, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. Now, Brendan, let's wind right back, as we like to do, and tell us a little about those days at Xavier College and how you ended up in the mailroom at Bendigo Street in Richmond here in Victoria. Oh, you've done your homework. Um, you know, I left Xavier at, uh, I was only 14, but I was not really very, not not academic, not very smart in that area. And um, so I'd always loved radio since I was a kid, listening to the serials and seeing Jack Davey on the Red X trials coming through Deep Dean where I went to school and, you know, all those sort of things. And um, when uh, I just knew what I wanted to do, and I had a cousin, uh, Geraldine Dillon, who used to do a cooking program on Channel 9 in the early days, and she took me in there one day when I must have been about 13, I think, for a bit of a look around the station. And at those days, 3AK was a bit of a hole in the wall. And um, so I was out just outside the window looking in and thought, yep, this is what I want to do. So um, about uh, six months later, um, I got a job in the mailroom at uh, nine. And uh, that was fantastic because you just got to see everything, read all the memos <laughs> before you delivered them, so you knew what was going on before anyone else. And um, you just got the real feel for the business. And it was an exciting time because Nine had only been on the air 56, about six years. So it was, you know, everything was all, you know, all going and all learning. So uh, I had about 12 months in the mailroom and I actually took uh, Peter Feynman's place. He went down to work in the props department. So um, I uh, had some big shoes to fill. And um, then I used to do some uh, odd work at 3AK on the weekends and after hours and so on. And then a job came up there as a, a turntable operator, as they call them. And um, I was actually working with uh, Bert Newton. Bert actually trained me how to use the panel. And um, then I would work, he and Graham did a morning 
show on uh, AK. I was panelling for them. And it was a great time to learn, you know, working with talent and seeing the, you know, when to speak, when not to speak, and you just got to got to know that side of it. And uh, we used to do broadcasts from um, Graham's place sometimes down at uh, <coughs> at Frankston, and um, he had a terrific setup. They had a studio built with uh, even had a screen, um, which he had a cartridge machine that had the 20th Century Fox theme, which he had coordinated with the curtains opening years, <laughs> the real show pony. And um, so, you know, AK went through interesting times because in those days it was only on air for uh, restricted hours until nine bought, or Consolidated Press bought uh, TBS Bathurst because they shared the same frequency. And in the winter, when it was uh, getting dark early, both signals would clash and you get one riding over the other. So um, they overcame the problem by um, Compress buying... Um, Bathurst, and they put directional aerials in, and then uh, 3AK went uh, 24 hours. And before that's when things started to, to change. Uh, Gary Day, or before Gary was the the, uh, the boss, uh, Eric Pierce used to manage 3AK as well as reading the news online, and he did a morning program as well, and I was his panel operator at that time too. Um, and then um, things obviously got busier in television, and uh, Eric went to um, sort of full-time at nine and I think Gary Day came in uh, as uh, general manager and he was terrific, really looked after him, lovely, lovely guy, terrific sales, sales background. And he introduced the good guys format, which he picked up from um, a visit to, to New York. Now, tell us about some of those good guys from the early days. Uh, Lionel York, for example. Oh, he was delightful. Um, we're still friends. We talk every, you know, probably twice a week. He, he stayed in Perth. Um, he came to us from Wagga, or to 3AK from Wagga, and um, he was doing afternoons, I think, but he was just vibrant, full of life, loved the music, loved what he was doing, and uh, was the real personality. He was, you know, always out and about comparing things and... Um, and you can see he just loved what he did. And after uh, Lionel stayed, yeah, he was through the good guys and the Wrinklies, and then he took off to, I think he went to Dallas in Texas and worked there for a couple of years. And then we caught up later on. I, when he came back to Australia, things had changed, and uh, I brought him over to Perth when I'd gone over there. One of the really unique jocks of the time, of course, was Grantley D. Oh, yes, well, I was Grantley's panel operator for, for a few years, actually. I must have been about uh, 15, I suppose, when I was doing that um, and did that for a few years. And that was really interesting because I'd have to um, read the copy to him and he'd put, put it into Braille, so he'd do the, the live ads. And, um, again, you had to be on the ball because you couldn't sort of, if he was running late, you know, <laughs> wind him up, that wasn't, wasn't going to do it. Um, but or rather an aside to that, it was quite funny. We had, oh, that's right, David Joseph was, um, I think he might have followed Gary Day when Gary went to Sydney. And um, I can remember the announcers meeting one day, he was uh, going nuts because uh, the announcers were either missing the pips at the top of the hour. And that was a huge deal in those days. You had to hit the pips. So um, that was impossible with Grantley. 
you know, to do. So what I thought I'll get around this, I went and switched them off and put them onto a cartridge. So I just dropped them in. Of course, I've you know, highlighted the meeting. Well, if this young kid can do it, why can't you guys? <laughs> but uh, no, Grantley was, um, he, he really went on for a long time. He must have had maybe about five years. I lost, lost touch with him when I went to, uh, went to Perth. But um, he did afternoons <clears throat> or drive time. And then um, I think it was Sunday mornings, Sunday mornings, that's right. Yeah. But also another interesting stage for AK, they introduced a half-hour news program hosted by a guy called Tim Hewitt who'd come out to start up the Sunday Age, I think it was, or it might have been in another publication, Newsday, might have been Newsday. Anyway, um, Tim was a fascinating character, full of energy and would just, you know, it was a very fast-moving 30 minutes. And um, he was actually the, the creator behind the, the uh, series 7-Up in the UK. And he was just a really, you know, fascinating guy. I spent a lot of time with him. And I actually remember when the big um, Vietnam moratorium march was on. I don't know if you remember that in Melbourne. It would have been late 60s. And um, <clears throat> I went to cover that with him. And I had this backpack on because we were going live, but, you know, equipped in those days compared to this now. Um, was, was, we were on the back of a truck, you know, and besides, we'd never realised how dangerous it was because we've got a big aerial on this thing. It's tapping the tram lines and everything else. But he was, he was a very exciting character. But it really was a good attempt for AK to try and do something, but they were better being just pure music. And so it lasted about a year, I think. So what did closing the shop down at 7pm in those early days do for the morale of the staff, knowing that the audience was just going to move to another station? Well, we were all always living in hope that things would change because it was, was really bad. In the, in the winter, we used to shut at five. Then the spring, it was six, and the summer was seven. So, I mean, it just made no sense you know, closing that early, but you just had to, and you just sort of felt, well, because the UZ was the powerhouse in those days. Um, you know, you're just handing the audience on, but nothing you could do about it. Now, from November 1968, some significant changes occurred at the station. 24-hour broadcasting, of course, an influx of some new talent and the addition of a guy by the name of Rhett Walker. What can you tell us about the late Rhett Walker? Rhett was fantastic. I mean, I was his 2IC for about three years and I learned more with him. I mean, he was like a college education. He was one of the rare breed of a very, very creative people, but an excellent administrator. His attention to detail was just superb. Unfortunately, I haven't kept any of his old memos as an example, but the way he would execute a format and if there was a weekend promotion running, he had every, absolutely everything detailed right down to the last the last second. And, I mean, another one of his standards was he used to uh, program the commercial breaks. So he would get a set of commercials and see, well, it didn't make sense to have a, a Revlon cosmetics commercial backed up with a, a Bob Jane commercial. He would then cluster them into, you know, if, as best he could with uh, products appealing to women, to men, if it was cars, fuel, whatever. And uh, he just had a great ear and I th- he never slept. I mean, you know, if the mid-dawn guy made a mistake at 2 o'clock in the morning, he was on the phone <laughs> straight away. And... Um, it was sort of through there that um, after Red had been there for, for a year, he was you can see he was building towards something. And uh, that was the start of the Wrinkleys campaign. 
read one of the slogans of the day for you. A wrinkly is a guy who pretends he's your uncle when he's really looking down your dress. Mm, my goodness, Brendan, that must have shaken the place up good and proper. Oh, it really did. That just, just you know, tipped the place on its ear. You know, but people say, you can't say that. You, you know, that just doesn't happen. But that the, um, the, the whole genesis of the campaign was created by uh, Lionel Hunt of the Campaign Palace. Um, no, he was at Macy's, I think, in those days. Um, and it was a really interesting group. We, I remember we got together for the first briefing. There was Gary Day, uh, Rhett, um, myself, and a young upstart media buyer, Harold Mitchell. And Harold did all the buying and planned the campaign. So, that, I mean, that's 50 years ago. Um, and um, uh, who else? Was just trying to, That was sort of the start of it. But uh, Lionel Hunt and Gordon Trimbath, they really drove the creative side of it. Palace did a fantastic job in their campaign. It really just had such an impact. Um, I haven't seen anything really, I don't think, for a long, long time after that that got anywhere near it. How surprised were you, if at all, when you heard that the Wrinklies had been dumped for beautiful music? Well, I'd gone to Perth about a year before that, but you could feel it was probably, you know, had a big impact but it needed something else because XY was a very strong competitor. Um, but I thought it was a brave move. But again, credit to Rhett. I mean, here you can go from rock and roll to beautiful music. Um, you know, he went from a caftan to a three-piece suit virtually overnight. But he executed that format um, superbly. And, of course, they did very well. I mean, the impact on that, again, was um, like the wrinklies, but only older. <laughs> Of course, you and Rhett crossed paths again, going head-to-head in Perth, you in charge of 6pm and Rhett at 6pr. So who won that battle? Well, um, I got there before he did and that was uh, really interesting and probably one of the most enjoyable times of my life because I was PD. And I remember when I arrived in Perth to start the next day, George Chapman, who'd set the station up beautifully, who was really well, well running, he said to me, now, when you listen tomorrow morning, because I'd only been over to Perth once just for a couple of days just to have a look and see if I liked it, not which I did. And uh, so I woke up uh, the Eager Beaver, 5 o'clock in the morning, switched the radio on to hear it, and um, the uh, breakfast announcer came on, he was drunk. And it was a sad story, a guy called Lionel Lewis, who'd been a legend in Perth, and he'd had a few personal traumas and tragedies. And um, he used to drink scotch in his coffee in the, in the morning. And um, no, it was just very sad. So I used to actually, I was living in a um, hotel in the city. So I used to get the uh, kitchen staff to make up breakfast and I'd take it in for him at five o'clock because he just wasn't eating. And uh, then I'd go back, get changed, and then come back at 8.30 and take him out to the local cafe and buy him breakfast and send him off for the day. And I did this for a few months. And he just rang one day and said... Um, Oh, son, I think you're wasting your time not coming back. And just as luck had have it, um, before I got to Perth, a guy called Barry Martin was uh, on air and the program director and things had gone awry with fraud issue and all the rest of it. So uh, he left and um, he had to go. And um, anyway, Barry rang me that week and said, look, I'd like to meet you and says, any chance to, you know, resurrect my career and anything you can do. So uh, I was living in Claremont then. So um, he said, um, well, why don't we meet at Claremont Football Club for a drink after work? 
So went down there one night in the bar and there's Dennis Marshall, the former Geelong player, was there and another guy called John Watts who used to play for Geelong but also played for East Perth. It was a real footy legend, a bit like Baloo Richards but much younger. And I just noticed the rapport between these two was just fantastic. And I thought, well, I've lost the breakfast down, so I might put these, bring Barry back and um, bring John in just to do a quick bit at 10 past, 20 past, 22 and 10 to, and we'll take it from there. Of course, the thing just took off. And um, I think that I can't remember the exact numbers, but I know they had nearly a 40% share of the breakfast audience, and that was pre-FM, of course. Um, and that ran for, for oh, probably 10 years at least. Um, and they were fantastic to work with. They were a great vibe in the station. I mean, it was just a fun place to, to go. And the, there was a guy following them who was there when I got there, uh, Jeff Bradley, who um, was a bit difficult. And uh, one day he pulled us on for something and we thought, that's enough. And Lionel had rung me wanting to see if there's anything going in Perth. So I said, come on over. So he followed Martin and Watts and it was just the perfect match. I mean, he, he just pulled, again, huge numbers. And... Um, um, then there was a guy, Michael Gammon, in the afternoon who was really a natural. He was terrific. And then doing drive time was probably one of the best of the lot was Sir Gordon O'Byrne. And um, it was a great sounding station. I think Rick Melbourne could have been doing, yeah, Rick was doing nights at that stage. So it was a really great team of uh, people. And I think that's right, Keith Harris was there, who was ex-2SM, and he was, he was fantastic. So we had just, a, it was just a good Good radio station, you know, one of the best. And also, uh, it was another one of those great things where we had a fantastic chief engineer, Murray Corf. Murray went on to set up uh, 3MP, and then he came and joined us at DB uh, and was, did a great job there. Um, so that was Perth, but Perth just the good thing about it was the size of Perth. You could try something and very, very quickly get a measure on if it was working or not. It was the good thing of being in a small, small town, if you like. So almost four years in Perth, and then it was back to Melbourne to shake up a fairly staid and stagnant 3DB. It was, in a sense, an invasion from the West with some of the jocks that you brought across with you, but the heralding of a new era could not have been more significant than moving John Eden out and bringing Rick Melbourne in. Well, I had to do something pretty dramatic, and I guess that was... But it was very hard. That was very hard to do because when I got to DB, they had over 100 on the staff. You know, it was a big staff and a lot of very good people and they'd been there for a long time. And John Eden was just a legendary breakfast broadcaster and there was no option, but we had to make the change. But it also was doubly difficult because he was a very good friend of my father's. He did my father's advertising. My father had an optical company called Coles and Garrard. And uh, John had done his advertising for years. So, of course, oh, you know, when the, it was a very difficult time at home, but it worked. <laughs> it had to be done. And uh, you needed a contrast. So uh, bringing Rick in just really set the, set the place on fire. Now, you had some good backroom support with the likes of Hamish McLennan, Keith Moore, and a little bit of help from the master engineer, Roger Savage, as well. But how confident were you in the new format? Um, very. 
The only uh, inhibitor we had was the racing, which I've fought hard to get rid of. I mean, we had Bill Collins, who, you know, none better. But um, it just, it was a bit awful, you know, building everything up Monday or Sunday to Friday. And then Saturday, you just wipe the audience out and then have to start up again. Um, and uh, I fought with the Herald Board over that many times that they won. <laughs> now, we recently got the front-end story from Dennis Scanlon about working with Graham Kennedy at 3DB, but I'm sure there's a back-end story as well as to how you were able to actually secure the king to the radio station. Yeah, well, he was uh, – he and I have been really good friends because I was as his panel operator at um, AK for a long time, and um, he was just really, you know, terrific fellow. And actually, up after um, – the number of times that Frank Sneeze let me have the house when he was overseas for holidays. So it was a pretty, you know, having logies for doorstops and everything else was, was different. Um, but when the story broke about um, the guys uh, jumping ship to go to KZ, I was actually overseas. And when I got back, um, the, they'd already done the deal with uh, KZ. And, of course, it created huge furor and press headlines and Graham rang me. And he said that, you know, that's just so unprofessional and disloyal and everything else. He said, if I can do anything to help, he said, I'll, I'll come in to, you know, get through it. So um, <clears throat> I remember and said, well, look, uh, let's go and have dinner and talk about it. But we'd just got into a music format, which was doing well. And I thought, oh, if we're going to shift the talk, uh, it's going to. So I said, look, you know, I'm just trying to balance this through. He said, don't worry about that. He said, how many records are now do you play? And I said, well, it's 12, 14. He said, well, I'll do 12. So um, he um, said, well, I don't want to do breakfast because I'm not an early morning person. Um, I don't want to go on morning up against Bert, but he said, any other other time of the day. So um, I put he and Dennis together. It just, just worked, worked a treat. They, they got a world and... Again, Graham was fantastic around the place. He really was. He fitted in with everybody. But the, the interesting thing was probably two or three times a week he'd come into office and bring a tape in and say, I want to go through it with you. <laughs> I remember one day I pulled him up on something. He said, listen, you were the mail boy, remember? <laughs> now, of course, besides Graham, there were certainly some big names that went through the radio station. I've got a list here of all the people who are at DB at the same, roughly the same time as Rick Melbourne, Dennis Scanlon, Ted Bull, Keith Harris, Alan Aiken, Steve Britton. Steve has gone on to become the voice of Channel 9 for years and years. John Deeks, who's been the voice of Seven for 40 years, just until recently. Uh, Gary Mack, John O'Donnell, Peter Harrison, Stan Rothe, Don Lunn. Um, we had uh, John Newcomb and Ron Barassi doing a sports reporting. Um, we had Brian Newington and Steve Price, not the 3AW Steve Price, but another Steve who ended up doing very, very well in Townsville and great, great producer. And um, knew we had Frank Avis, and Frank was, has been with me for most of the journey from today. He was AK, DB, Today FM. Yeah, yeah, so Frank and Robert Hicks, Colin Denovan, and we had... Um, set up just set up an arrangement with seven to use Brian Naylor to do the 738830 bulletins on DB in the morning as a cross promotion thing. So it was a you know, also we had Jeff Cox and uh, Greg Smith. I uh, Greg from Hobart. And um 
no, it was just, it was a great atmosphere. I mean, it had all those sort of people. None of them, just, the, you know, Peter Harrison, I think I mentioned Peter. Just the, the real cream of the crop. They really were. Now, Brendan, you did mention a couple of sporting superstars there, and you did break some new ground with a unique piece of sporting programming for the time. Tell us about that little project. Um, because footy being so strong in Melbourne, we put together an idea. It was running in Perth, so we copied it. Um, we did a footy show, and um, a friend of mine, Alan Johnson, who had the old Melbourne, we were talking one day, and I said, I think I might try and do that here and explain. We used to do it at the clubs. And he said, well, why don't you do it at the Old Melbourne? So we got a terrific panel together. We got Mike Williamson, Lou Richards, Sam Newman, Kevin Sheedy, uh, Ted Whitten, Russell Blue. Oh, it was great. And we'd pack it out every Friday, edit it down and play it back on on Saturdays. And that sort of, because you had, you couldn't just go all music, but that just, and it was sort of from that that a lot of those guys ended up on Nine's footy show and that, that came along years later. You're listening to Pilots of the Airwaves, and today we're speaking with Brendan Sheedy. Now, Brendan, at what stage could you see the writing on the wall for AM stations with that emergence of FM radio? Oh, you could see when um, Fox was was coming. Um, what they, well, of course, when they started off, they were sort of trying to attack the ABC a bit. But with uh, E on FM, I thought, well, they're going to cut right across everybody. And it's just, it's going to change everything because it just, music on AM just doesn't, doesn't work and um, so it was at, at that time um, the Herald had a 15% share in Eon or 14.9 um, I think Paul Dainty was in it uh, Bill Armstrong there was a group and uh, I thought well you know that's the way they're going and um, so you could see it was going to change that meant DB really had to either find itself back as a targeted older um, and then who knows after that whether it goes back to a talk format or, or what which you know 3AW had stayed the course all the way through for decades and of course that's where they are, where they are now I'm heading out and moving easy it's time to hit the road once more I'm moving out on highway 're to say that Sin City isn't known for rolling out the red carpet to Melburnians, especially those who are there to tell them basically what to do. Were there some initial hard yards while setting up two-day FM in Sydney? Yes, it was uh, interesting there because the um, station had got off to a pretty rocky start. Um, they tried so many things. I think I was the third general manager in in a very short space of time and it was a 
a very strange board to, to work for. Um, again, Graham Kennedy's in the picture again because he rang me. He was a, he had fifteen percent of it, and was a, was a director, and um, he was really unhappy with the way it was because he said, "Well, basically, most of the guys on the board or the people on the board," he said, "don't understand radio." Um, he and John Laws did. Laws was good, but the rest of them were just playing with it. You know, they've been across to LA and thought, "Oh, yeah, we want the LA." sound sort of format but it was just a mess and also they thought uh, to save money that uh, they put this huge automation system in um which was a very clunky machine driven chain driven thing that used to go and pull the cartridges out of a rack and put them in the machine and then you had the reels of tape which had all the announcements on back announcement intros and then time calls on the other well it was always getting out of sync and the machine had just pulled the cards out dropped them on the floor so we had it had to go, and um, then we'd sort of finally got the station go where it wanted to. Got the you know essentially the the board to keep out of the the um, nonsense of trying to program the place. And um, I hired Cherie Romaro from uh, Triple M, and we brought new announcers in that were better suited to it, and, and that that. Um, it, it started getting somewhere, but again, it was a, a difficult one because another issue they had was with the, the power. Um, the aerial array that they had um, and the topography of Sydney were not conducive and the, it needed an increase in power. And um, there was much debate about that and what effect that could have. So uh, I ended up going to Canberra with... Um, Rod Muir, that's right, we went down to see Ian Sinclair as the Minister for Communications to force the point that, you know, without this, we just weren't going to get out there and it was going to be bad after the big introduction of FM that people can't hear it on the, on the lower North Shore, which was the target area for the, for the audience. So um, Sinclair gave us way through a power increase without any studies or analysis or anything. Yeah, so we got the power increase through but that was done without any real analysis or impact studies or anything. So anyway, power gets pushed up. And uh, the next thing, um, Channel Line is screaming on the phone, we've wiped out their colour on the lower North Shore, turn it off. So um, that went on for some time and we had to get uh, all sorts of things done with the aerials and on and on it went. And um, finally we, we got a reasonable increase but it was still you got in certain areas you've got what they used to call the picket fence effect where the signal in certain areas would just be breaking up so who were some of the big names at today fm at the time well clive robertson was there when i got there and i thought he was not a good fit for for the station i mean he's a very good great broadcaster but um uh he was just he was difficult um and uh to be honest, I can't remember who. Oh, Laurie Bennett, I think, was there. Um, I can't remember the rest, to be honest. They were okay voices, but not um, yeah. talent. But the interesting thing was um, um, Robinson had a, uh, he did a late night news program on Channel 7. Mm. And um, one night uh, his co host said, What's it like working at Today FM? And he said, oh, it's a very strange place. He said, uh, you've got a chairman. He said, he's got no conversation whatsoever. And he just walks around uh, saying to the staff, hello, thanks for joining us. And um, 
I, this is 10 o'clock on a Friday night and my phone goes and it's Willisie on the phone, get rid of him. And I said, can we talk about this another time? Because he had a, had a few. I said, can we talk about this tomorrow? So he was insistent that he had to go. And um, I said, look, I don't think we need another change because they've gone through so many people. It was just like the departure lands at the airport. It was ridiculous. So uh, he said, no. Nah. So I was trying to get Clive all weekend because he was a bit of a hermit and couldn't, couldn't get him. So I fronted up in the station at four o'clock on the Monday morning waiting for him to arrive to say, turn around and go home. So uh, I think I might have put Tim Webster into breakfast, I think, but I can't remember. Yeah, but it was a strange place with the, uh, the personalities on the board trying to hold it all together. So personally speaking, how did you find your time up in Sydney? Oh, we enjoyed it. As, as a family, it was good. Um, but as, as things, it's sort of funny how things work out. Um, <clears throat> across the road from today, if we were in the Ramada building at uh, Crow's Nest on the Pacific Highway, was a friend of mine from Perth who I'd known since, uh, since I went over there many years before. And um, we are having lunch one day and he just said, oh, mate, he said, you're not yourself. And I said, well, I'm not enjoying doing what I used to. And he said, well, he said, I think, you know, you ought to join with me. He said, uh, I see the home video business taking off. So he and I went to the States. I left and he and I went to the States and we acquired film rights from the various film companies and distributors and set up a, uh, a company in Sydney. And uh, that ran for, well, I sold out after about five years and uh, then we, we went back to Perth for family reasons because um, a couple of the kids had asthma and Perth's climate was perfect. We loved Perth as well, so we made the change. And that change, of course, was to 6IX in Perth. Now, Brendan, were there some familiar faces or, or should I say familiar voices on the radio uh, when you returned back the second time around? Um, just trying to think. I think they'd moved. They had been a, a talk personality station and I think most of those, the John Fryer, Peter Dean, those guys have gone and we... I think repositioned the station. It was a bit hits and memories and a bit of sort of everything and um, <clears throat> pulled together. Uh, yeah, we brought Rick Melbourne came again, Gordon O'Byrne. Uh, we got a good lineup together and, and took a different approach. We had the Campaign Palace did another campaign for us. We just targeted as being radio 30 to 40-year-olds and just went bang for that demographic. And it really, really nailed it. It did, did very well. So I was there for about, um, it must be about four years, five years. And um, then um, while we're doing this, everything was changing because we had some stations in some of the regional areas <clears throat> which were struggling. And I thought, well, probably they're going to have to start networking or a bit of automation or something to get costs down. And it was while I was uh, doing that um, that led me to sort of thinking further about it. And I was contacted a friend of mine, John Condy, whose family, the Land family owned 2UE, and um, got talking about networking and all the rest of it. So I went over and we met and talked about a thing, put a plan together, and that started Sky Radio. Now, Brendan, we generally keep our chats to the 60s, 70s and 80s. However, we can't let you go without asking you about your time at 2UE and Sky Radio in 1999 with Alan Jones and John Laws, and their fascination with companies such as Qantas, Optus, Foxtel, and Mervac. 
If nothing else, it would have been a tense time in the corridors, I dare say. Oh, it was. It was just, uh, well, you, you could sense it coming because um, as good as John was, uh, his favourite clients got a, you know, a very good run. And we had him networked one stage up to 80 stations, which was, you know, big, even over, the, you know, WA, which was always, you know, obviously a bit anti the East, but the three-hour time difference made things difficult. Um, but I remember I had a call one day from, God, I think it was, might have been from Young and Tamworth, and just said, look, we're pulling the pin. He said, we've just had enough of all the free ads and, you know, we're not getting anything out of it. And... Um, he was determined he was cancelling because he just had enough. And um, so I went and spoke to John Condy and said, look, I think you're going to have to step in and do something here because uh, I think this could be the thin end of the wedge. And that, that sort of, after that, you know, away it went. But um, it, it was difficult. It was a shame to see, um, you know, what happened. I mean, you had, I think, too many outsiders involved. Like Harry Miller was Alan's manager and he was sort of, always pushing me to network Alan, but then there was all the alternative, you know, other reasons why he wanted that to, to be. That it was, it was a really, it was a sad time because Huey was such a strong, you know, heritage radio station, great reputation. Um, and, and sitting through those hearings day after day was, was just awful. So, Brendan, it's been a long journey from turntable operator at 3AK to where you are today. You've seen it all in that time. What has been the single most significant change in radio in that time? Um, well, it's, it's been technology-driven, so I suppose it's been um, FM and then it has been networking, which I think has probably gone too far. Um, I mean, we were doing, um, you know, Laws, Bitter Jones, uh, Stan Zamanik at nights, we had him on 20, 30 stations. And then we had um, Tony Hartney, ex-Perth, was working in Today FM. He did nights and we syndicated that. And we had someone else doing mid-dawn, I can't remember who. Um, and so networking started to take over. Um, but I guess the next change is now that it's all the streaming that's going on on the podcasting. Um I sort of can't get my head around if podcasting really takes off, it means there's less people listening to live radio because you can only listen to one thing at a time. Um, and watching how DAB as um, the share appears to be to be growing, um, I think it's interesting to see what Smooth FM has done um, with their Smooth Relax format they've got on DAB. Um, then there's no ads, there's no announcers, there's no news, there's no nothing. But they've targeted, it sounds like it's about 10 years older than Smooth, so maybe they're building something for moving some of that audience across. Um, I haven't met um, uh, Paul Paul Jackson, but I've heard, you know, obviously a lot of good things about him actually when he was in the UK before he came here. But I think he's been what looks like a breath of fresh air. I think the way he's just managed the whole place and set it up and they've done a terrific job so i suppose it's been the, the way smooth has, has gone so well but i think it's the technology that's just impacting on the industry everywhere from and i think it is networking and uh, there's probably less automation than there was because it's probably easier now brenda not too many of the announcers that you've hired over the years would realize that you too had your time behind the microphone to warm up those turntables at 3ak 
<laughs> yes, we used to have to do, a, I suppose, a test program for half an hour from 6.30 to 7 or 5.30 to 6, whatever time we came on, came on air. And actually, there was another time, um, and I knew I was not destined for a career in radio on air because I just didn't have the voice or the personality. But one Saturday afternoon, I was panelling for Pete Smith <clears throat> and he took ill. And so I had to take over. So um, this is, I was on air from about three till six, something like that. Anyway, uh, the technician uh, in the control room said, oh, um, Nigel Dix on the phone wants to speak to you. Nigel was the boss of Channel 9. And uh, he said, um, oh, he said, I'm just back at the, he said, it's a Frank Packer's hotel room. We've been to the races. And he said, I put the radio on and heard you. He puts Sir Frank on, he says, in his husky voice, oh, doing a great job, son. He said, you take your best girlfriend out to dinner and send me the bill. And I thought, we'd better go and find one first. <laughs> that, that was the extent of my audio. Plus, you know, when you were panelling for Graham and Bert, they'd, you know, do a bit of chit-chat with you now and again. Brendan, to finish off, there's a dozen or so questions we ask our guests every week. We start off by asking, where were you when you heard that John Lennon had died? I was at DB, it was December, <clears throat> and um, leading up to that, I'd been across the States a few times. We got very friendly with the people at KFRC, the station in San Francisco, and KHJ in Los Angeles. And they were, part of the, well, they were the RKO network. And the guy that was the music director of KFRC was a guy called Dave Sholin, and he used to write for a lot of music magazines and everything. We got on really well. He's a terrific guy. Anyway, he rang me from New York to tell me what had happened, and he said only an hour or two before, he said, I'd just done the last interview with him, with Lennon, and uh, he said, I'll send it to you, which he did. So, I mean, in those days, you couldn't scream it, so we had to wait for it to turn up in the mail or, you know, air freight. So uh, I remember that. Actually, I was in the States, not last year, the year before, and caught up with him. And uh, and we were talking actually in October because it was Lennon's 80th birthday. And I think the BBC replayed some of, the, replayed some of that interview. Yeah, so I a good memory of that one. The last concert ticket you paid for? Uh, either the Eagles at Rod Laver or um, Springsteen at um, in Sydney. No, I wish I can't remember which... They were both reasonably close together. The concert act that you regret not seeing? CB Wonder. <clears throat> yeah, I've always wanted to see him, so I don't, don't think it'll happen now. Now, Brendan, who was the jock that was called into the principal's office most often? We've talked about him a bit today. Uh, <laughs> Rick Melvin. <laughs> Any particular oh, yes, examples was, there? Uh, oh, he was just... He, he no doubt would be... Obviously, one of the most talented. I mean, there's, if you cut him into four, you'd have four terrific, manageable, you know, creative people. He was just, uh, you know, he could be explosive and all the rest of it, but uh, you just keep riding through and think, oh, we'll get through today and he'll be back tomorrow. And, you know, he always was. But uh, he was just so full of energy, very draining. <laughs> I mean, some days you'd go home, rung out after him, but uh, he was the one. <laughs> Skyhook saw Sherbert. Um, well, Skyhooks in Melbourne, Sherbet in Perth. Yeah. No, actually, I've got a, 
among the collection, I've got a terrific photo of um, we had um, Shirley in the studio with Dennis Scanlon and Wolfman Jack and Michael Gadinsky one day. It's a classic. <laughs> the Rolling Stones or the Beatles? Yeah, um, probably I'll be the Beatles were, you know, going just as I really came into radio or started at, at GDV. And actually, Pete, I went out to the airport with Pete Smith and we covered the arrival and then came into the Southern Cross and it was just an amazing sight. And we had a studio a few floors up above their room. We actually dropped a microphone down to their, their balcony when they're on the, on the balcony. Oh, that was an exciting, exciting time. Do you have a most treasured piece of memorabilia from those early radio days? Um, probably I've got some photos and a few letters. Um, um, I've got a terrific photo that I really appreciate. There was a, a legendary program in, uh, program in New York, a fellow called Rick Sklar, and he um, programmed WABC, which was a fabulous station. And, um, yeah, memory I've got it with him. I'd been a few times. Each time I go there, he'd host and take you through the station and, you know, give you lots of things to bring back. And on this particular trip, I'd said to him that I'd been to LA, San Francisco and Dallas and I said... Uh, and it was the first anniversary of Presley's death coming up. And I said, I'm surprised no one's done a tribute program for it. And he just, we're having lunch. And he said, Priscilla is doing that right now upstairs. So when we went back, um, met her, and he gave it to me. He said, you can have it anywhere outside the States. So I ended up, uh, went, on the way back, we went to London and um, sold it to BBC and um, paid for the whole trip. <laughs> it was terrific. <laughs> Can you recall the biggest risk you took that realised your biggest return? Uh, would be Martin and Watts. That was, it just really took off. It was incredible. And I suppose where I'd personally benefit from it was um, after being going for about, it must be nearly a year, I had a call from, we had a wonderful guy who looked after radio for Kerry Packer, a called Len Major who had a great radio background. He used to do the Red X trials with Jack Davey and he's with Macquarie and just and a lovely guy. He was just just terrific. Anyway, he read me one day and said, um, oh, he said, look, I want to bring you over to uh, to meet uh, Kerry um, because he said the station has done so well and, you know, it went on. And uh, so anyway, the next week I went over and he picked me up at the airport, took me out to Willoughby and walked up in the boardroom there's the big fella sitting at the end of the table. He was on the phone. He said, sit there, son. So I sat at the other end of the table. And uh, he um, acknowledged, you know, how well it had all gone and the rest of it. He said, um, I'm going to give you a bonus. He gave me $10,000, which in 1970, married 73, yeah, 74. It was, it was a bit of money. And uh, he said, no, I don't think we're paying him enough. So he upped up the salary by another 10. But he said on the first 10, he said, we'll pay the tax on that. So I walked out with 10 beat. And uh, then he said, now go get yourself a new car. But he said, don't go stupid. So, um, yeah, I did. So when I came home and said to my wife, we just paid off half the house today. <laughs> so that was probably the, the best, yeah. So is there someone that you've met over the years where you've suddenly become starstruck when you saw them? Uh, apart from my wife, um, it would probably be probably Tony Bennett. Um, we met him 
in Sydney at a function after a concert at the Opera House. And then we were over in the States the following year and somebody invited us to his concert at the Hollywood Bowl. So we went to that. And as it turned out, we were staying at the same hotel in Beverly Hills and we met up again after I had a function there. And um, so met him twice and photo to prove. <laughs> and probably Elton John, he, he came into PM and um, we came to the office, just sat down and chatted. Tell me, Brendan, best words of advice a superior gave you? Uh, probably Kerry's part of Packers' party words to me when I left, don't F it up. <laughs> well, they did say he had a way with words. So, Brendan, if it hadn't been media, what career path may you have taken? Uh, property development. Yeah, I really enjoyed. I've done quite a bit. Um, when I was in Perth, as a bit of a sideline. My wife and I bought uh, some property around, do you know Perth? Western suburbs, which is Claremont, Dalkeith, Netherlands, near the river. And we did about mm, six or eight houses there and they really, really did well and um, did some units. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed that. You know, so I still look at having a dabble every now and again. And finally, Brendan, can you think of two albums that were the soundtrack of your teenage years? Uh, probably Cosmos Factory and the White Album. Yeah, it would probably be, be it. Can I say it's been an absolute pleasure and an honour to spend this time with you today, Brendan. And I know that our listening audience through the podcast would have been transfixed the whole time as well. Thank you so much for your time today and thank you for your contribution to Australian Radio. Thanks, Paul. Brendan Sheedy, our special guest on Pilots of the Airwaves, and a special shout-out to our growing audience in the USA, especially those people in Virginia. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you're enjoying it. We'll catch you all again next time. Yeah.